There was misinformation out there that said that Margie Stone and Dolly did not do any kind of active shooter training. In fact, the month before they did. However, they did not train for when the fire alarm goes off. And what happened is there was complete confusion. Uh, they had the lockdown drill going on. When the fire alarm went off, they were like, no one knew what to do. So they thought, wait, the fire alarm went off. We have to get out. So when they started going out, shots were going off, people got killed. And it just was, it was a disaster. And that's because they didn't train for every possible situation. Daniel Deluzneski, welcome to the Dad Hat. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me on, Lee and Nikki. I appreciate it. It's an important subject, and uh, it's something that needs to be talked about, uh, especially amongst uh, dads and moms. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So uh, will you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Yes. My background, I worked with the Secret Service for 24 years. And had a varied career. Uh, luckily, I was uh, able to stay in Washington, D.C. the entire time. I was on the canine program with my bomb dog, Karak. And we got to travel all over the United States with my dog, uh, head of the president. And that was kind of neat. I was in public affairs for a while. I got promoted to lieutenant. I was there at 9-11, uh, which was uh, very, you know, very exciting, but also very tragic. And um, when I left there, I came down here to Florida and I was just going to sit on a beach and relax. And uh, being an alpha personality, it was, that took about two months where I couldn't stand that anymore. So my county had an opening for an emergency manager with the school system. And I thought it was something that would fit in uh, with my background very well. And it did. Uh, so they hired me again, uh, kind of jumped in, not knowing much about, you know, being in a school system or, or what I needed to do. And I was just handed the reins because I was the only one. Uh, they were like, no, you're it. You're the guy. You're, you don't have a staff, nothing. You have 140 schools. You have over 100,000 students. Have at it. And I just made it my own. I was given some autonomy, not complete autonomy. And I decided, okay, well, the first thing I want to do is see every one of these principals. So I made it my goal to visit every one of the 140 schools. Took me a little over here to, for schedule wise and found out what they do for their emergency preparations, whether it's for an active shooter or whether it's for something showing up with a weapon or whether it's someone trespassing. I mean, even minor things that uh, were going on and found out that there were a lot of things that they were doing wrong. And there's a lot of things that some of the schools in the country are doing wrong. My first thing was a lot of these schools were using a code system. Uh, when they would go into an emergency, they'd be a code red, a code blue, purple, whatever color they wanted to pick. And I, I just, I just didn't get it. I couldn't understand it. I said, look, maybe it's fine for someone that's been in your school system for a number of years, but what you have visitors, what if you have maintenance personnel? What if you have someone that's come on the campus that's an outsider? They're not going to know what the code means. They have, will have no idea. I said, why not just speak plain language? Tell them we're in a lockdown. We're in a lockout. Whatever it is, just in plain language. And boy, did that take some time. I had one school, and it's in my book, and I apologize. I didn't mention the book um, because I'm not on here to sell the book. It's just about being aware. 
It's called The First Five Minutes, A School Shooting Survival Guide for Administrators and Teachers. It's a very practical, short book. It's only 77 pages long. It's a guidebook. It's something that you can look at very quickly, find out what you need to find out, and shelve it. It's not a two or 300-page diatribe of educational, what I call edge-of-speak, that you it will just collect dust on a shelf. Yeah, it's great for your administration. Do you have a school safety book? Oh, yeah, it's right over here on the shelf. Yeah, it's 200 pages long. No, I don't need something like that. I need something and teachers need something that they can quickly reference. And within that book, there is a generic safety, uh, emergency uh, safety uh, program that you can download. Also within that book, what I did was, and I found this out uh, as obviously as you go along and you create these drills for schools, I found out from an individual, he said, hey, he says, um, I know I've had these little credit card size reference cards. And on there, I've put on there what people need to be reminded of. And I was like, man, that's a good idea because everyone wears a lanyard with their ID on it or their uh, copier cards on it. And so, so I created these reference cards and you can laminate it. It's in the book. And we'll have on there uh, a, a bomb threat, active shooter, tornado, uh, all these emergencies. And you can quickly reference it in a chaotic situation. Because I'm telling you, Lee, when the stuff happens, you, your mind is going to go blank. You're going you're, you're to think you remember something, but then you're going to be like, I know I forgot something. Quickly look at the cart. Okay, forgot to turn the lights off. Or I forgot to silence my phone. Or I forgot something. So it's just something, again quickly that you can use. It's simple. And again, the reason I wrote the book, uh, we could talk a little bit about Uvalde. That was just a terrible tragedy all across the board. But my wife said at the time, she said, look, you got to vent, you got to get something out. Uh, so I started writing the book and uh, it was just something I needed to get off my chest. I wanted to make it again, very practical and very easy to read and something that people would get something out of it. So that uh, was my background, the reason I wrote the book. And what we're here to talk about today is uh, partly it's about active shooter training. I understand it's basically, uh, again, there's no data out there. We talked about this, but it's being like being struck by lightning or winning the lottery. It's very infrequent. More than likely, it's not going to happen at your school, but always better to be prepared, always. And I wrote the book with teachers in mind because the toughest job in the world now to me is being a teacher, not only because of the pandemic, but because of what's happening with some of the school boards uh, and teachers unions telling them what to do with the pressure they're getting from superintendents and school boards to hire the grade of whatever grade the school is in. The teach these students now have been left behind for basically two years. So the pressure is on for that. Now you're also telling the teacher, yeah, by the way, uh, you're going to need to know what to do in an emergency situation if a shooter comes in your school. So in the book, partially what I've talked about is, number one, uh, the best way to protect yourself for an active shooter event is to lock down. Now, there's an argument out there that the Department of Homeland Security came out with what's called run, hide, fight. Run, hide, fight was not created for schools. It was created for businesses. However, it's transferred over to schools for some reason. I don't know if it's law enforcement that's done it or schools thought it was a good idea it's not a good idea. Now, we, I say we, when I'm down here in Florida, in my county, we did try it out. We tried it out at some of our high schools. High school students today, I mean, I'm showing my age, but, you know, high school students today are much more mature, uh, basically like college students, like when I was in school, uh, can think for themselves. 
And the run-hide fight does work in certain situations. However, as we've seen at Marjorie Stone and Douglas down in here in Florida, they did try that. And they did train for that. There was misinformation out there that said that Marjorie Stone and Douglas did not do any kind of active shooter training. In fact, the month before, they did. However, they did not train for when the fire alarm goes off. And what happened is there was complete confusion. Uh, they had the lockdown drill going on. When the fire alarm went off, they were like, no one knew what to do. So they thought, wait, the fire alarm went off. We have to get out. So when they started going out, shots were going off. People got killed. And it just was, it was a disaster. And that's because they didn't train for every possible situation, which is hard to do. So this run, hide, fight option, it, it, it would have to be up to whatever county supervisor there to decide if they want to do that for high schools. Elementary, middle schools, that's not going to work out because, and I don't agree with high school in some situations also, because what you're doing is you're putting that option on the teachers. So here's a teacher in a classroom. They hear shots. They hear the announcement. There's a shooter on campus. Uh, you know, we're going into a lockdown. So they're giving teachers an option saying, you know what? If you think you can run out of that classroom, if you know where the shooter is and you think you can run, we'll give you the option to run. Now, if I'm a teacher, I'm going, liability-wise, what's my best option here? Because I tell you, it's about self-protection. You're going, I'm going to take 25 to 30 kids out of this classroom into a hallway. No, no, I had no idea how far the exit is. And they're going to be hearing stuff you don't want them to hear. They're going to be seeing stuff you don't want them to see. Why would I do that when 99% of the time lockdowns work? And I've asked, and finally they've created here, again, in my county, during teaching time, during uh, school time, classroom doors should be locked. It's one less step you got to take. One less step. Door's already locked. All right. You have to have to go into a lockdown. You already know we're locking the door. Shut the little window, turn the lights off, sit down quietly, help us on the way, silence your phone. Don't listen to any alarms or announcements. Don't listen to anyone banging on the door and help us on the way. So I, this run, hide, fight is, is just, I think it's finally, uh, it was a very uh, big program when it first came out, but it's finally settled down where I think they're getting away from that. So anyway, um, yeah, that's just a little bit about it. I think, I, I, Lee, we had talked about in my book, we talk about implicit memory, if we want to uh, focus on that. And if people don't know what implicit memory is, it's basically muscle memory. It's the same thing you do, uh, let's say you put a seatbelt on in your car, uh, tie a tie, button a shirt. It's something you don't think about. It's just something you do automatically. You've done it so often, it's repetitive all the time. It's just something you do. It's not something you think about ahead of time, the steps you have to take. So implicit memory for active shooter training is basically what I've talked about going into lockdown and going through the steps of keeping yourself safe. And the number one thing Lee, I want to mention is keep yourself safe. I'll do a little bit of story. Mostly it's elementary schools because as an elementary school principal or a teacher, you are so involved that these kids are your family. You, you treat them like your family. And it gets very emotional when previously I would go through drills with these elementary schools and the principals and assistant principals would go, well, during the drill, we're going to walk around to make sure that the doors are closed. I'm like, oh, okay, but what would you do during a real situation? Well, we do the same thing. We'd go around and make sure the doors are closed. I said, are you carrying a weapon? 
Well, no, I want to make sure my teachers, door. I, I couldn't explain enough to them that you're going to get shot. You're, you're probably going to end up being killed. Didn't matter. I, they would get emotional with me. Those are my kids. I got to make sure they're safe. And, and I had to argue with them going, first off, you have to keep yourself safe. You're not keeping anyone safe if you're not keeping yourself safe first. That's first priority. You keep yourself safe, then you can keep your students safe. So that's the number one thing, keeping yourself safe. And we talk about implicit memory. It's just a repetitive drilling. It's just repeating over and over the same thing until pretty soon you're going to get it. When something happens, you're going to go, it's going to click in your head. You're going to, oh yeah, I know what to do. And you just, you just go and do it. And that's why I pushed it in my county when I was working there to have that confidence to say, okay, lockdown drill. You have to flip that switch. You get into a different mode. You're in protective mode now. Yourself and your kids, we're going to protect them. So when we talk about implicit memory, it's about that muscle memory of repetitive drilling. However, it's very hard for schools nowadays to do that kind of thing because of what we talked about, the grading issue and uh, how much pressure they have to you know, build these kids back up and build the school grade back up. So I asked parents, uh, I've asked teachers, I've asked parents, because they'll say, what can we do? Nothing we can do. Yes, there is something you can do. You can talk to your legislature. What are they doing about school safety? When you go in front of a school board, ask them, well, what is your school safety plan? Ask the principal and especially ask your kids. Even if the elementary school kids just say, you know, what do you do when the bad guy comes into school? I mean, you can make it, you can, I say, dumb it down. You talk to the children about that way. And this is what teachers did also. They don't want to scare the kids. I understand that. Uh, you know, you tell them the bad guys come, we have to hide. So that's how to approach it, but ask them. And if you have issues with it, if you don't agree with it, if you're like, no, this doesn't make any sense, uh, then talk to the school board, talk to the principal, go up to the legislatures, because as we've seen, parents have a lot of power now. They're much more involved and they should be in this kind of uh, safety for their children. You're allowing, you're dropping your children off at school and then you're going to work. Forget about it. They got it. No, and some tapes, some situations, they don't have it. They're not doing the right thing. Um, so you need to find out the frequency of, of when they're drilling. We already know fire alarms. They're, they're doing that at least once a month, which is kind of ridiculous. But find out about their school safety practices. And I'm going to let Lee jump in here, but then my brain's just running. Recently, what I would call a knee-jerk reaction, um, parents want things to do, something done. You have to do something, do something. We just had a shooting over here, do something. So administrators have this pressure on themselves to, to do something. So some get a grant, some get enough money, and usually it turns to technology, whether it's cameras or metal detectors. And that's just been the, the going thing now. Okay, we feel we have to do something. We're gonna get $100,000 worth of metal detectors. We'll be safe, Whew. okay, we're good. We're done. And that's the whole idea about a lot of these administrators. Hey, we did something. This is what we did. Look at what we did. We got metal detectors uh, without thinking it through. Uh, metal detectors are nothing but, again, what they call security theater. It looks good. Um, it's not going to prevent anyone from bringing in a weapon and going crazy. Like I like to point out, look, if you've got some kid who's being bullied, and decides, I had enough of this. I'm going to bring a gun into school. I'm going to take care of the situation. That child's probably just, all he's thinking about is just 
taking care of business. You know, I'm not going to be bullied anymore. He's not thinking about some mass shooting of killing, you know, 20, 30 students or teachers uh, or bringing a knife in or brass knuckles or a weapon or a pipe or whatever the heck he's going to bring in. If someone, and it's usually a student or a former student, is intent on causing a mass execution of people, metal detectors are not going to stop them. They're going to get in. They're going to get in anyways, just shoot everybody there and keep going. So metal detectors for me are just a feel good situation. It's a waste of money. Your money should be spent elsewhere. Number one, from my perspective, again, my opinion, put special resource office, excuse me, armed special resource officers in your school, create an atmosphere that is not only welcoming, but is also layered to prevent a bad person from getting in and harming teachers and students and start working on putting very good doors in, very good locks. And um, the other number one thing would be just have one entrance to that school during the school day. I've seen multiple times, Lee, the, the hundreds of times I've run drills where doors will be wedged open. They'll be open for their buddies. They'll be open for a pizza delivery. They'll be open for somebody to go outside and have a smoke. And it's just, who's looking at that? You know who's looking at that? The shooter. They're looking at that. They observe this stuff. That's why you get a lot of former students or current students to do this because they know the weaknesses. They see what goes on. They see what things happen. They even watch the drills themselves and will say, okay, I've seen this, this, and this. I know what to do. I know how I'm going to get in there and create havoc. So this idea that it's never going to happen there is one thing, but the idea that you can be lackadaisical and just wedge doors open or allow them to swing open or be unlocked during the school day is, is just crazy. Anyway, Lee, I'm sure you yeah. have some for me. Yeah. So the thought of, you know, uh, it's never going to happen to us is probably really prevalent amongst most schools in America. And I think that's really just people wanting to make themselves feel good and, and not, and keep the fear away, which is not the best strategy by any means. But, uh, some takeaways uh, from what you just said are, you know, using plain language, right? The the code of code blue, code red, all that stuff doesn't work because, like you said, you got visitors, you have other people that, you know, aren't familiar with the language. So it's just better to say, hey, we're going on lockdown because there is an emergency, right? Yes. Um, and, and the implicit memory thing, I mean, you talk about fire drills, which... I can remember being in in school and we're we're doing yet another fire drill, which we are we've we execute very well. And, uh, you know, we just don't see that many extremely dangerous uh, fires in schools, but we're doing it all the time. So it might be a, uh, a good thing to replace that with, you know, an active shooter drill. Once a month, just like you were in the, in the Secret Service, mm -hmm. um, that way it's second nature. It's secondhand. It's subconscious on, you know, what I should be doing. And you also mentioned something great. You know, uh, when you're on an airplane, they always say, put your oxygen mask on first. Correct. That way, you know, at that point, once you're safe, you can help other people. And that's kind of what you're getting at in the book too. keep yourself safe first. Uh, that way, you, you know, you're alive to, to help others. So, you know, I, I would say my, my next question is, 
you know, are schools different in practice than than other government institutions? And, and why is that? And should they be in different practice? Yeah, schools are a unique situation. Uh, again, when you talk about businesses, mostly adults, when you're dealing with children, it's just a whole different situation. And I, I want to mention one thing. Um, I know recently uh, this has come up where parents are concerned about the drills themselves, saying, well, this is going to affect my child. Uh, this is going to make my child more fearful. Uh, I don't want any drills at the schools. I don't want any loud bangs. I don't want any kind of emergency situation because they're going to get anxious. And from my perspective, again, look, I went through the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when I was in school, they had these nuclear drills. Basically, you would go out into the hallway, you would do the duck and cover, and you would sit there for however five or 10, it felt like forever. And none, none of that affected us as a child. You're just like, okay, I'm listening to my, what my teacher says. You go over here, you listen, you, you sit down and you're done. Um, this idea that somehow these drills just create anxiety and create more anxiety uh, to me is, it's just not right. Uh, look, if your child has an issue or already has an issue with anxiety, let the school know and let them know, look, when you run a drill, just let me know. I don't want them to go there that day. I will tell my child that, look, if some situation happens, listen to the teacher. So do it that way. Don't just blank as a blanket movement, take them out because you don't want them to drill. Now, and the drills themselves, Lee, it's all over the place. I mean, you've seen drills that have come in with, I say, live weapons, weapons that have blanks in them. Uh, just make this loud noise, you know, gunshots. Okay, I get it, but don't do that when the children are there. If you are a teacher or an administrator and you've never heard a gunshot, go to a gun range. I mean, just so you know what the shot sounds. It's not a firecracker. It's not somebody who dropped a bunch of books. You'll recognize something, a, a gunshot between something else that, you know, a, a car backfiring. Uh, but yeah, don't, this idea of, of almost too real of a drill, you don't need to do that. No, yeah, and your drills should be run specifically for certain things. Now we've talked about active shooter and the idea that it's, it's infrequent. Yes, it is. However, what's become more frequent is uh, bringing weapons into schools. And we've seen that more and more, especially on the news uh, with this, you know, six-year-old bringing a gun in. Um, and that's something so we don't want to focus all the time on active shooter drills. I like, I like the idea of having more drills, but it's not just something that specifically to be focused on because you're going to have weapons that are brought in, whether it's knives, pipes, you know, guns uh, that'll be coming to the school, not necessarily going to be cause a mass event. They may just be causing something because they're pissed off at a teacher or, or uh, bullied or something like that. So, it's something, again, that the training that you do as, as best you can. Yes, you want to alert them to active shooter uh, drills and what happens uh, during an active shooting. But you also want them to make them aware that, look, it, it's that's so infrequent. But what frequently may happen is you may have weapons in the school. So we'll go back to uh, schools themselves. When I started, Lee, uh, most of the fencing around schools were just being created. Some of them had three foot high fences, which were nothing. And we finally got them to put six foot fences up. And then you'd have lobby areas that were wide open. And usually what happens, Lee, is, is when something would happen, then you're going to fix it instead of thinking ahead of time. So we had a couple of schools that had uh, countertops were about waist high. 
And most of them had these half doors, these little half doors that would swing open. And I would walk in and be like, what's preventing someone from just jumping over the countertop? Oh, we've never had that happen. That's not going to happen here. And then it did. We had a father who was divorced, who wanted to get their child, had an argument with the staffer, jumped over that counter and started attacking some of the staff there. So they're like, uh, okay, we need to do something. So what we came up with, and it, it, I tell you, it takes you back a little bit, but it makes everyone feel safe. Raise that countertop, just like at a bank, bring tempered glass down. Again, just like a bank, you have a little slot in the bottom if they need to pass paperwork back and forth. And at first, and I agreed with that first, it just looked when a parent came in, they're like, oh my God, it was like you were in prison because it was in completely enclosed. But after a while, when you explain to them, look, not only is it protecting your child, but we're also protecting the staff here. So when you come in, I understand it looks like it's just this prison type atmosphere, but we're keeping everyone safe. It is still an open atmosphere. You'll have one entrance when you come into the lobby, you talk to the individuals there, once you are cleared in, they will buzz you in to the next point. So that works. It's been working. Now, what's also come up is people show up in front of the door and it'll be locked and they'll have a camera there and they'll buzz them into the lobby. I, I just thought that was a waste of time because you're going to let everybody in. They're not standing there with an uh, you know, AK-47 and camouflage and you're like, oh, I'm not letting that person in because it's just kind of ridiculous. Uh, even if someone stood behind that person, kidnapped them, they're going to get into the school, but they're not getting into the school itself. They're just getting into the library area. So let them in. I mean, they've only got one way to go out unless they're, they have access because everything else is closed up. So it's a layered process to prevent that person from creating havoc and creating an event. So the number one thing is one entrance, you have layered security. The lobby area is enclosed. They can't get in unless they're buzzed in. They have access. And then once they're in, those classroom doors are already locked. So anything to slow down this person from getting in and creating havoc because they're looking for easy victims. They're looking for those open hallways. They're looking for a large number of victims. They are not going to breach a locked door. It has not happened in the history of the United States except in one area where they actually broke a window in the classroom and got in that way. It takes too much time to mess around with a locked door because they have a clock ticking in their head also. And the reason for my book when I wrote the first five minutes is because the FBI data showed an average active shooter event was uh, happened between three to five minutes. So it seems like a very short time when it's happening. When you're there, it doesn't. It seems like it's going on forever. But these shooters are not insane, let's say. They have a clock ticking in their head and they'll do as much damage as they can. In fact, we, I've seen articles where within the first 30 seconds, they're going to do as much damage as they can. And then they're either going to shoot themselves, wait for the police or get out. I mean, Cruz just, the guy in Margie Stone and Doug, he just took off. But anyway, um, it's a layered process for schools uh, for this kind of stuff. So when parents go to these school board meetings, ask about drills, ask about their safety plan. You can see their safety plan. Ask for it. You can see it. Uh, they should be able to show it to you. If it's not online, if they don't want it online for whatever reason, uh, ask to see it. What's your safety plan? Um, ask what they're, what they're doing uh, once school starts. Have they, do they have only one entrance into the school? Are the classroom doors locked? If not, ask why. Why not? Do they need cameras? Yeah, cameras have, it, they have their purpose. They're not a be-all, end-all. 
most of the cameras that you see in schools now are just to prevent bullying and, and kids, you know, uh, creating havoc uh, because you'll have them. And these kids figure out within a few minutes where the dead spots are. So, uh, you know, they're, they're great in one respect. Yeah, you want them in the parking lot. You want them out front. You want them in that lobby area to see who it is. Um, but the, this idea, and there are different training methods out there. And, and some are good and some are bad. There's, there's something called Alice training, alive training, whatever training is out there. And they are just a little over the top because they will ask, they'll ask teachers, administrative staff to monitor uh, via their cameras where the shooter is and announce where the shooter is. And it's just kind of ridiculous because it's like, wait a minute. I mean, a situation like that, I'm not worried about where the shooter is. I'm worried about myself to keep myself safe. So a lot of these trainings and, and programs um, just don't work. They, they just don't make any, any common sense. So anyway, I'm sorry. So you want to jump in? I, I apologize. No, no, it's quite all right. You're, uh, you're the expert here. So something you mentioned earlier um, was, you know, getting pushback from some of those parents saying, hey, these drills are going to create anxiety, which you know, the lack of exposure to scary or hard things to our, to, in our culture right now is a, you know, it's a scary thing to me to, to not expose them to hard things and not expose them to scary things. Because in this event, if it does, if it does happen, you are even more unprepared for an unpreparable event. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, you know, that scares me a lot. Um, you know, parents being afraid to expose them to that. But I mean, you, you've made the point. It's, uh, it's very, very necessary. Wouldn't you say, I mean, it, this has got to start happening or, you know, we're, more people are going to die during these events. Exactly. And we talked a little about metal detectors, uh, again, as just a knee jerk reaction, a feel good situation and okay, we're done. Uh, no, it's a constant, it's constant. Every month, at least every month, sometimes I, I suggest every couple of weeks, you have a, a safety meeting with your teachers and people at the school. What's going on? We've heard threats. Are there any students? Now, we haven't got into behavioral threat assessment. That's not my field. It, it's out of my lane. But it is a good thing to have a behavioral uh, threat assessment team on uh, what's going on in your school and have students feel free to talk to people about Johnny or Susie or whatever having issues. Uh, they talked about a threat, you know, this kind of stuff, uh, that kind of, that kind of stuff uh, also uh, should be done. But what I wanted to mention, uh, we talked about, you know, children being afraid. I dealt with an elementary school and, you know, uh, first grade through, I'm sorry, kindergarten, kindergarten through fifth grade. And I went and there was a two tiered school. So on the second floor, it was a, I want to say it was a circle. So what you did was, from the outside, you came through a couple of uh, glass doors, then you went in and the, and the classrooms were in a circle. So in order to go into a lockdown, one of those classrooms, they would designate a classroom and a teacher uh, would come out with keys and lock those outer doors. And I asked them, do you have a backup plan if that teacher's not there? It's a substitute. Yes, it'll be the next one down, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, during the lockdown drill, everything went fine. And I said, okay, well, I asked the students, these kids, I said, well, what happens if Mrs. Jones here um, faints or passes out or is incapable of going to lock those outer doors? And these kids were unbelievable. Boom, the hands went up. I know where the key is. I know where the key is. I was like, 
Oh my God, you do. Yeah, it's right outside there in the fire extinguisher. Okay. So I got all these kids. I said, come on, we're all going to do it. All came out. They opened up the fire. They got the key. They went over, locked those outer doors. I said, you guys get a gold star. I said, because that teacher goes down or is not available to do that, you know to go out and lock those outer doors. So again, this idea of these drills that are going to create anxiety in these kids, these kids want to help. Every elementary school I did a drill in, and I did more elementary schools than anything else, because obviously, just by population-wise, we've got more elementary schools and less middle than less high schools as you go on, uh, because classrooms, is, you know, schools just get bigger. Every one of these elementary schools I went to, and they did a drill. These kids, when they came out at the end of the drill, would have smiles on their faces. And I was so proud of all these kids. And some of them would double up. They would go not only in their classroom, but a lot of these classrooms had bathrooms. So you're putting 20 kids in this tiny little bathroom in the back, and they would make a game out of it. And at the end of the drill, they'd come out, and they'd all smile. I said, you guys did a great job because I tell you, elementary school kids, when you tell them to be quiet, they're going to be quiet. They're going to listen. You get in the middle of high school. Okay. That's a little different. (laughs) That doesn't go go so well. But um, I tell you, these, these small kids, they are not naive. They know what's going on. Uh, They don't want the bad guy to get in there. They also feel for their teacher and for their classmates. I mean, we've seen at Sandy Hook uh, up in Newtown, Connecticut, an area that I'm from uh, where there was that one kid that saved a bunch of these kids uh, when that guy was reloading and he got them out of there. So uh, again, we just go back to the idea that um, they're going to be uh, scared to do the drills. And no, I think they welcome it. They want to help. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. So let's go to the individual level. Uh, if you're a father and you're talking to your son about the, you know, these possibilities of, you know, an active shooter at your school, what are you telling your son? My son's 16 years old. Uh, very intelligent. He is in the uh, International Baccalaureate program here. And I'll tell you a little bit of a story. You know, you'll read in the news about some new drug that's come out, some new pill that's come out, some candy that's come out with either got fentanyl or opioids or whatever the heck is out there nowadays. And we're driving back. And I said, uh, my son's name is Luke. I said, Luke, I said, you, you don't take anything from a stranger, right? You don't, if, if some kid's going to give you some candy, or, you don't, you don't take it from a stranger. And he just looked at me and he said, Dad, I'm in IB. And it just, it just stopped the conversation right there. Like, like, okay, I'm too intelligent to even answer that question. So, uh, yeah, that stopped that conversation there. So uh, I've asked him about what happened to the school. He does uh, tell me, uh, not in detail, but he will tell me how they handle their operations there. Now, obviously, uh, father to son, it's a lot different when they're, they're very young. Once they get to a teenage age, as you know, Lee, they, they know everything. I knew everything when I was 16. Oh my God, I knew everything more than my parents did. And you know, then you realize it when you start working, it's, it's like, you no, know, I didn't know very much. I didn't know anything. <laughs> anyway, um, I encourage parents to at least ask their kids, yeah, teenagers are, are different. We all know that teenagers are different. They're all, it's all about social media. It's all about being on the phone. Um, but it doesn't matter. You can tell them. You can, uh, For me, for my son, what I did was we finally did a screen time thing. Like, okay, there's only so much screen time. You need to put it down. And you have to have that, that kind of discipline. I mean, just giving them a phone at, at first was a big, big to do because, uh, again, in my opinion, I disagree with phones in, in schools anyways. They shouldn't have phones at all. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. But 
when you want to talk to your child, tell them in plain language what the deal is. Uh, if they're small, you tell them the bad guy gets in there. You listen to your teacher. Um, if you want to tell them what to do, because it, again, it all depends. You find out from your school what their safety plan is. If they're doing run, hide, fight, which I disagree with, um, then you're going to tell your child, okay, listen to your teacher, but they really should be locking down. And I, I, I've run into a situation where you've had little kids saying, you know, my daddy said, we're supposed to sit on the floor and wait for the police to arrive. We're not supposed to run out of the classroom. So that's what you're going to run into. Um, but again, yeah, you want your child to listen to the teacher. And again, make sure that the school, you've seen their safety plan, you know what they're doing and ask them, what do you, you know, Johnny, what, what, do, what do they do? What do they do? And they'll go through the details because I tell you, little kids, uh, again, are not naive. They, ha they are very detail oriented. You ask them, is the door classroom door locked? Yeah, it's locked. Do they turn the lights off? Yeah. Do you sit on the floor? Well, we sit at our desk. Okay. And uh, just tell, ask them, you know, what, what they go through. So again, it's a hard subject, but they need, you can't hide from something like that. It's no secret. It's not something where I'm afraid to talk to my kids because I don't want them to feel that they're in danger. Uh, obviously, you, you, want them, you want them to be safe. And when you turn them over to school, you expect them to be safe. But just be vigilant on something like that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, so you mentioned uh, you don't like cell phones in school. And uh, before the show, we talked a little bit about social media and how it might amplify or make you know the situation worse yep. um talk a little bit about that and and let us know what are the problems with you know texting your parents that something wrong is happening or or how does it make it worse well something like that and i have plenty of examples lee i had one school uh, north of us here at about 12 1300 students that was a high school and right next door was a middle school and they had a bomb threat and once this bomb threat happened, the school decided against my wishes to evacuate the school, meaning they had a bomb threat only. That was it. They had no package. They had no suspicious package. They had nothing that showed there was an actual bomb, but they decided to evacuate the school. So the middle school, being right next door, decided we better evacuate also. Now you've got like 2,500 kids wherever their staging area was. Well, what happens? Both middle and high school, the kids started texting and they started texting rumors and lies. I saw a bomb. I saw the wires. It's on the second floor. I mean, all these texts started coming out with disinformation. And they're in the meantime, sending texts to their parents. We had a bomb threat. You know, Susie said she saw the bomb. This one said we saw wires. And what do you think as a parent? I'm coming. I'm in my car. I'm on my way. So now you've got thousands of parents coming to the school to even make the situation worse. And what happened was, thank God, we had the uh, fire department take their ladder truck and put it on the road to block the parents from coming in because you couldn't even get emergency personnel in there with the amount of parents that were coming in. Now, I understand you're scared. You want your kid to be safe. But there was no package found. It was just a threat. It was a threat only. And yet social media was just filled with all kinds of stuff that made no sense, was wrong. And it, it just exploded the pun uh, into the situation that was needless. I've also had at a high school, more of an inner city, I say inner city. It, it, yeah, it was in Clearwater, more of an inner city high school where they had a report of a student saying, I saw a gun. 
He showed it to me in the bathroom. Okay, we go into a lockdown. Now, once we go into a lockdown, again, the text starts. Someone saw a gun in the high school. What's going to happen? Here come the parents again, okay, because the texts are going out. Well, during all this, while we have the police there and personnel searching for this gun, uh, one of the classrooms had students texting, hey, I saw the gun in classroom A. Well, no, I saw the, cl- the gun in cl- and, and it just snowballed from there. there. There were guns everywhere. So to me, it's just crazy to have phones in schools. It doesn't make any sense. If parents, when we were kids, we didn't, you didn't have phones. Would kid, kid, parents want to get a hold of their kid? You call the front office, bring Johnny up to the front desk and need to talk to him or whatever. There's no reason for phones to be in schools at all. There, there is no one can come up with a reason. Why do you need phones in schools? Because it's, it's getting into the, the teachers, I'm sure, hate it. I mean, if you told the teachers, hey, we're just going to eliminate phones in schools and be like, hallelujah. You know, we don't need that distraction. You don't need that. Because I even talked to my son. It, I, I said, do you, are your phones allowed into the classroom? Oh, yeah. Does so we should put them on silent? So meanwhile, they're sneaking around. They're holding the phone down. It's on silent, playing games, sending texts to each other. And it's just. It just really, really dumbs down the the situation for teachers where, where they can't teach. So, yeah, it, it's social media is just um, it's not a good thing when when it comes to school safety. All right. All right. I got gotcha. you. I'm sure there's some arguments to be made about having, you know, you know, your cell phone in your pocket is a lot of information that's available to you. So. You know, I, I get what you're saying. It's going to impede on the process of education for sure. And, the you know, it uh, makes the teacher's job harder, no doubt. But I, I would also think that um, the parent or the father, uh, you know, making sure that the, the child is disciplined enough to not use the cell phone at home or I'm sorry, use the cell phone in school and only use it to communicate, hey, I got I got baseball practice at six or Hey, I got to be at school early in the morning. Can you get me there? You know, communication is prop. There's there's some value in the communication for sure, but I can definitely see the impediment on the on the schooling process for sure as well. I agree, I agree with you on the communication part. If we stick with that for a minute, uh, my stepdaughter is going to college down in Sarasota, and she actually asked for a phone that did not have internet. She wanted a flip phone just for the communication part. She didn't need it for the internet. She says, I'm tired of the social media. I don't need to be on the internet. I'll have it uh, be able, as long as I can text and make phone calls. That was it. I was, I was shocked. She's 20, what, just turned 21. So I'm hoping the pendulum will swing the other way because these kids are like being just ruined by, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever the heck is out there. Uh, and uh, hopefully some of them realize that I don't need this. I don't need this to, you know, to have a good life. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree that a lot of social media or too much consumption, really, I think it's the consumption part is probably the issue mm-hmm. because, you know, there's going to be arguments that TikTok has value for learning. You know, Instagram has, you know, communicative uh, communication value there. You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, arguments to be had there, but I can totally see how that can um make the chaos even worse during an, during a, uh, emergency for sure. Yeah. So, well, um, uh, as a, as a father, 
uh, as a person that sends your child to a school with thousands of other kids every single day, are you, are you continuously worried or do you feel like uh, school shootings are, you know, something that's publicized too much? The media does obviously take Lee, uh, something like that. It's sensational. And as you know, the media is in the business of making money. So bad news sells better than good news. Uh, so, yeah, I know. But uh, back to your question, I don't worry about him being there. Uh, he's in high school again and he's got a good head on his shoulders. He doesn't do stupid things. And he, you know, again, can think for himself. And they do have at his school two armed uh, special resource officers. Uh, they've had very good fortune with them. Um, in fact, I think it was, it was last week or two weeks ago down in Manatee County, uh, they caught these two kids that were making threats uh, over the internet uh, about uh, shooting up a school. They had a program, believe it or not, they created a program, an animated program of how they were going to attack the school. And uh, luckily, I think it was either a student talked to one of the special resource officers or talked to administrator and said, hey, something funny is going on here. And they did the research and caught these two kids. And fortunately, I say fortunately, it is a felony now. And I told my son, because just a quick story, when he was in middle school, he was sixth grade, I think. And he uh, just, you know, the kids are kids. And he wrote something on the sidewalk outside the school. Not something, you know, graphic, but I don't know if he wrote a letter or something like that. Man, did he get in big trouble. And even I was like, he wrote chalk on the ground. What's the big deal? Oh, no. They, it was like zero tolerance. They were like, that's defacing property. You know, you're going to get in trouble. And he learned from that. So, you know, something like that, I agree. A, a zero tolerance policy on something like that is a good thing. And um, so far, he is thriving at his high school. So, uh, yeah. I'm confident that they'll know what they're doing. We do get messages. And that's another thing I would encourage if parents are not getting messages, if something happens and they hear about it, third party going, wait a minute, that's where my child goes. How come I didn't get a message? Most of your schools now should have either a text message or an email or phone call to you saying, this is what happened. This is how we took care of it. Everybody's fine. You know, uh, we're continuing the school day. Or in fact, there's, I don't, I don't agree much with apps. Some of the apps are, are okay. As long as they can communicate between what's going on in the school and you and your child uh, is fine. If they have apps like that out there. I, I mean, I've got an app on my phone. If something does happen, it would, it would, it's on his phone and the school would notify you through that app if something happened. And that was another thing that I've had incidents at schools happen. And I've had superintendents ask me, well, how do we put it out? Should we put it out? Uh, especially the bomb threat I was talking about up in that, uh, the high school and the middle school. And I was like, yeah, uh, don't hold back. Tell them exactly what's happening. We had a bomb threat. We've evacuated the school. We're staging here. Don't come. We will let you know when it's time for you to come and pick up, if you want to pick up your child. Because most bomb threats, as you know, Lee, if they're going to evacuate, we're talking at a high school, two to three hours minimum to search that school, minimum. And I've argued with them over and over again, going, look, it is a, is, is it a viable threat? A lot of the times when I, you know, when I was a kid, it was mostly fire alarms. Uh, you pull a fire alarm, get out of a test. There's a lot of bomb threats too. Cause you call a bomb threat in, they don't have to take a test that day, you know, I'll call another one in and tomorrow. It's no big deal. However, 
when the caller comes in, every school has a form. Then when the caller comes in and on the form, it'll say, you know, uh, where, where is the bomb? What time is it going to go off? What does it look like? Uh, give me more specifics. You know, uh, all this kind of stuff. Usually it's a hang up. Bomb threat at high school, B, click, hang up. Okay, if it's something like that, I, I tell you the truth, I dealt with it at the White House for a number of years. It's basically like, look, it would be daily you'd get bomb threats at the White House. Oh, my God. So what we would do is we'd have everyone in their areas, check their areas. Is there anything suspicious? No, back to business. Because it, 99% of the time, it's just a threat. That's it. Just a threat. So we had high schools. Oh, and in fact, Nikki, I think you said it was from Dunedin. A Dunedin high school would get three or four bomb threats a month. So you're taking thousands of students, bringing them across the street, put in a staging area, two or three hours later, okay, let them back in. It's like, why? There was no viable threat. If they're not telling me specifically, it's in Mrs. Jones' classroom, room 103, it's going to go off at such, such a time. I'm not listening to you. I'm not doing it because what's going to prevent them from doing it again? Don't. What we do is what normally should happen is you would have your staff members go out and do a cursory search. Classroom will continue and you go from there. Nothing was found. Good. We're good to go. Because otherwise, if I'm a, a person making a bomb threat, hey, look, the chaos I created. Isn't this fun? I'll do it again tomorrow. So that's not going to prevent them. If class is still going on, you're like, well, that didn't work. I'll have to think of something else. So, you know, it, it just... Common sense has to prevail. It does. I understand. And I had arguments again with my superintendent saying, well, look, if one student gets injured or killed, oh, my God, the liability, because they're so worried about liability and the press. Why didn't you evacuate the school? We didn't evacuate because there was no package. It was just a threat. That's all. I mean, would you evacuate your entire thousand person media center because of a threat? Why? Why, why, why would you do something like that? So. It's, it's just this fear factor of, you know, somebody calling a bomb threat. Oh, my God. Now we've got to, it's all this chaos and stuff. Um, if, not, if there's no situation or a package being found, there's no reason to do that. Anyways, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm not be stuck on bomb threats, but that's just what's been happening uh, in this area anyway. Yeah, I can I can imagine it's, you know, hundreds or thousands to of, of threats uh, versus, you know, an actual emergency. So I get you. So going back to speaking back to parents, you would say that um, to to make sure that your child is safe, make sure that your school has a plan yeah. and, it'll, and and actually look and, and, and see if it's the plan is viable. If it doesn't make any sense, talk to the admin about it. Is that, you know, that's that's kind of what we should be doing. And the second thing is speak openly to your child about the possibility of you know, uh, an emergency like this, an active shooter, a bomb, uh, make sure that it's something that they're at least aware that could happen. That way, you know, it's not such a surprise. Would you, that's good advice. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, we talk about, uh, children, uh, you know, the, the old adage, if you see something, say something, uh, you're mm. not a rat, you're not a rat, you're not ratting somebody out. You are keeping yourself and everyone in your school safe by telling them this individual said they were going to make threats. I've seen this individual with weapons. I've seen this individual online with graphics about, you know, killing people. I've heard this individual say certain things. It's okay to say that stuff because you're keeping yourself safe and you're keeping your school safe. 
Um, it's not about ratting somebody out. So I've told my son that I said, look, if you see something, if something just doesn't feel right about a certain person, about something you've seen, uh, you need to say something to someone, someone you trust, someone, whether it's an SRO, whether it's an administrator, teacher, whatever, and tell them uh, what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all my guests. Um, how does being a father affect all of your other life roles? And what advice would you give to all the fathers out there? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing, Leo, we had mentioned this. Uh, my son is adopted and we got him late. Uh, when I was in my forties and fifties, I didn't want a child. Life was great. I mean, I would, <laughs> it, it's, it's a funny story. Maybe, maybe most parents have run into this and, and fathers have run into this, but I wanted my freedom. I would have uh, friends, kids come over. I couldn't wait till they got the hell out of there. I was like, cause they were touching stuff that don't touch my stuff. You know, they were breaking things they were running around. They were loud. I'm like, Oh my God, I would never want kids. So as time went on, you start to figure like, what the hell's my legacy going to be? You know, not that who's going to take care of me. That's kind of selfish, but just what's your legacy going to be? Are you just going to go on and then die? And then that's it. And at the time, well, I was talking to my wife, my ex-wife now. Um, and we thought, well, why don't we, let's think about this because we were older and she was older. So obviously as if she had gotten pregnant, um, you know, the, the situation would have been different, but we tried adoption and, uh, we adopted him from Vietnam and went over there to get him. And it was a hell of a process, but I'll tell you what, it wasn't the Vietnamese people. It was the United States. that was the problem, uh, because, and I can realize the United States was a problem because there was a lot of corruption that went on with the adoption process over there. Um, but anyway, once we, once, once we got him and went through this whole process, so it is now 16 years later, uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, he's turned out to be a great kid. Uh, it, it's just, I, I encourage adoption for people who, you know, are older or even for people who can have children, uh, or for people that just, you know, have this unconditional love for a child uh, to be adopted and to have this great life. And he's gone back to Vietnam to search for his birth parents. But again, that's, you know, the old needle in the haystack uh, because uh, come to find out uh, his mother uh, gave um, wrong information about the father and wrong information about her address. It just, it was a cultural thing. And he realizes that. And now it's not something that he's, um, focused on that. I need to find my parents. Uh, that's, that's not in him. Um, but th the thing of it is, you know, you say to yourself, if he was my blood, would he be different? Would he want to do things that I do? I, I love sports. I love cars. I love motorcycles. I love hunting, fishing, all this stuff to be outdoors. And he is exactly the opposite. Could care less about cars or motorcycles or any, or sports. And it just really bothers me, but it, that's okay. Um, even if he was blood, he, he might be uh, the same. All he might, you know, not what, like that stuff anyways. And it doesn't matter. So it's just, does it change you? Yeah, of course it changes you for the better. And it just makes it life a lot more fun and, it, and, and a lot more interesting. And you just want them to succeed. You absolutely want them to succeed and do better than you did and uh, just encourage them. And you're just, you're, you're just really proud to see uh, 
the man he's become, really. That's an amazing story, Daniel. I uh, I commend you. My my wife is Vietnamese, and oh my god, uh, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't say I have a lot of uh, uh, information about how adoption works or anything like that. But man, they are a. It's a great culture. I think that they 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 work hard. Um, they love freely, and I really do love the Vietnamese culture. And and I, you know, I love all cultures out there, but. You know, that was one, that is one that sticks out to me very much so, so. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's, uh, we had two choices. The choice was Guatemala to get a child from there, which you had to visit twice, or Vietnam, and you had to visit once. I said Vietnam, because as you said, the Asian people, just hard workers, just nose to the grindstone, and they, they want to succeed. So that's, uh, I'm glad we did. And, and, you know, of course, as a, as a, as a guy, I wanted a, I wanted a son. And the thing about Vietnam was so different from China. China was readily available to give away, uh, girls. Vietnam was the opposite. Vietnam was boys were more available. So like, okay, I'll take a boy. So it, it worked out well. Heck yeah. Hey, one more thing. I want to thank you so much for your hard work in, uh, and, and your, and your study and your education for everyone about, uh, being safe in a in an active shooter situation, and uh, you're doing a great service to the community. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you so much for being on the Dad Hat. Thank you, Lee. Appreciate it. The book is uh, the first five minutes. Uh, it's on Amazon, and uh, you just put that put first five minutes in. You'll see it. And uh, like I said, it's a short book, easy read, and I encourage people to uh, read it and listen. Stay safe. Yes, sir. Thanks, Daniel.